This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is January 14th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is Tammy Mujis, and I was Tammy Bako at WRHU. I was at Hofstra Radio from 1998 until 2005. Okay. What shows and programs did you work on at the station? I started as an on-air engineer for Irv Simner's Out Behind the Barn, and that was Sundays, really the first show on in the morning. So whatever time we had to sign on the station, I was the one that had to show up and sign us on the air. And uh, yeah, I worked with Irv. I also did the classics and uh, Aggressive Edge, of course. I was the blog format producer for the Aggressive Edge for most of my time at WRHU. Okay. Um, so did you have any other titles or positions of management at the station? Um, yeah, I was the music director briefly for about four months and I sort of stayed in administrative level management producing the edge. Um, <laughs> I guess it was my ideal situation, um, because I didn't want to have to deal with the executive board and the meetings that were involved with that, to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. Understood and noted. Um, when you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have any nicknames or aliases? Well, actually, um, I did go briefly by Daisy Death. And some of the people that I'm still in contact with that were fans of the show still call me Daisy. Uh, I think it was a Hotmail account that I had to talk with the labels at the time. Um, but it originated from a backyard wrestling ring girl persona which i had developed in my teenage years um yeah so that's just you know some of the long island folklore that i always contributed to my on-air sessions at rhu okay daisy death i like it that's 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 great um okay so two-part question and you can answer this however it makes sense to you but i always want to know what is it that brought people to hofstra radio in the first place and then if you could describe what it was like when you got there, whether it's the people that you met, what the station looked like, what it smelled like, what was going on the first time you got to Hofstra Radio? Well, thank you for asking the question. I could kind of back up from there beginning when I was a little child. I just always loved radio. We grew up on the South Shore of Long Island and we didn't really have a lot of money and radio has always been free. And uh, I guess we spent a lot of time in the car. So I grew up listening to like uh, Z100, PLJ, DRE, Hot 97, WBRE, I'm sorry, BAB. And mm-hmm. later on, even um, Q104.3 when they started playing hard rock. Right. And, uh, you know, my dad was also an over the road truck driver and it taught me about how radio worked so clearly even as like a a toddler i could get it because we were driving hundreds of miles you know he would take us to trips through the country you know out to texas down to florida and we would just be driving through all these radio markets and i remember getting upset because you know where's the song going why is it why is it fading out and what's this all about and he told me about fm signals and you know just having fun with my voice was always something I wanted to do. Um, my mom used to let me play with 
my dad's CB radio from the truck in these truck stops, like while he's trying to catch a few hours sleep. And I thought I was just like this master of vocal trickery. And everyone believed that, of course, I was an adult and I was a truck driver. And <laughs> I, I used to make radio shows at home. You know, we got a little cassette player from Radio Shack that I used to make recordings. And uh, I mean, it goes through it goes through my history of like a person growing up just trying to find their voice on on Long Island, you know, um, radio was always there for me. And yeah. I guess, uh, you know, I had these friendships too. Everybody encourages each other through learning about new music. And, you know, you have these best friends and stuff that pass you CDs. Uh, we used to call up for like radio contests. I remember one time I, I won a Nine Inch Nails uh, contest on Q104.3. Nice. Yeah. And I felt so cool because I was like 14 and all the high school football team was like listening to the radio in the gym. So they heard me win these tickets on the air and, uh, you're, you know, you're a celebrity all of a sudden. I was a celebrity in that way. <laughs> I mean, it's just funny because I'm prattling on and on, but there's just so much to say. I'm so happy to talk with you, Brian, because well, like, well Yes. As, you're, as you're telling me all this stuff, I'm wondering, is it is it your nature that brought you to this or is it the nurture, the environment that your parents created that you're surrounded with all this music and radio and all this information or is it both? Like it just seems like you were built to come to Hofstra Radio and be part of Aggressive Edge and all this stuff. Oh, that's just like such an awesome question. I'm, I'm really thinking that it was all that music that my parents exposed me to, you know, I didn't have any limits. I definitely had more metal influence and, you know, hard rock. I had some brothers that played drums, um, you know, and like making friends that we started hanging out with our licenses and parking lots. We were listening to late night metal shows hmm. and, uh, that's how we connected. And before I got to college, I was doing that. And we were listening to shows like the aggressive edge and, uh, you know, mighty M was on, I took the torch from Marcello and, uh, he made such a big impact in the scene at that time in the mid nineties. And this was before you could just stream anything. Right. People actually had to hang out with each other. You couldn't look down at your cell phone. And the way that you got new music was often from like a college radio station. So like one of my jobs after high school, before college, during that summer, I was lifeguarding and I wanted to work at this specific property. It was at South Freeport. You had to drive all the way down Guy Lombardo mm -hmm. by the water. And it had this clear line of reception right to Seton Hall, WSOU. Pirate Radio, and they played nothing but metal. And this wasn't like what was on Q104.3. This was like, you know, the deep cuts, uh, new music also, and it was non-commercial also. So I got to work at this pool that nobody ever went to really because there were all these green flies. Uh, but I wanted to work there and get there just so I could listen to the radio all day long. And, uh, you know, eventually I think the flies were probably into metal also because they stopped bothering me. And 
you know, I actually went in for my first interview at the station with my lifeguard uniform on. Um, I met with Bruce Avery, Ed Ingalls, Sean Novat, who's the station manager at the time. And I think Michelle Lisi was there too, the operations manager. And uh, they gave me a chance. I was worried that I wasn't going to be professional enough and dressed well enough, but I think it worked out because I may have told them about WSOU and what I did to get that lifeguarding job just so I could hear it. Um, but they really gave me a major chance. And I remember it was beautiful. It was located in what was called Dempster Hall. Mm-hmm. It's now Herbert School of Communication. Um, and nobody was in there. It was beautiful, glistening white tiles. Um, you know, the blue and the gold. They had the music that was on at the time. You know, it's like softly piped into the hallways. And they had all of the staff pictures up in the hallway too. So I got my chance and I got my photograph up there. And I remember taking the engineering classes and Bruce with his long, thoughtful, serious pauses, <laughs> telling us specifically this is not sandbox radio. And I'm thinking, okay, I guess I've been doing sandbox radio. What, what is this? You know, like it was very professional. I just wanted to get any time I could on the air. And, you know, everyone had to start with the engineering slot. So I met up with Irv and he was such a sweetie pie. I loved working with him. I think he introduced me to Hank Williams. Yeah. And uh, he used to wear a red scarf, a long red scarf around his neck. And he would give me the show laid out on a long legal pad with everything set out and like how long the songs were and everything. He was so meticulous. And he would thank me as the lovely engineer, Tammy. And uh, when he was finishing up his show, Basha was coming in to get ready for her Polka and Oberic show. And that was a big deal in my family, too, because my father, when he found out I would be at RHU, he says, oh, Grandpa used to always listen to Basha. Yeah, Basha's been on for in my house forever, you know. He would always listen to Basha. So that was really, really cool. (laughs) That's amazing. That's that's great stuff. And I love the detail that you remember about Irv, because as soon as you said the red scarf, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I could see his handwriting, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, on on the legal pad. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for uh, for reminding me of that. Now you mentioned WSOU, and that's yes. something that you would listen to. So you're aware of that in high school before you go to college. Were you aware of Hofstra Radio, and was there a, a choice between the schools for where you wanted to to study and go into radio? Uh, yes, there was because I couldn't really. I did apply and was accepted to Seton Hall but I couldn't really see myself leaving this circle of friends and my parents. And I just wanted to see what Hofstra had, you know, it was always a prestigious university. So close to me. I lived in Wontaw my whole life and I knew about the aggressive edge. And, uh, you know, we started hanging out with these kids in a neighboring community. They had a band, you know, I could shout out some specific band names and stuff, but uh, they would send demos to, aggressive edge. And I had a boyfriend, um, he had 
a band that played in the scene. So I knew about all these shows that were happening. Um, it was just like a really lively place to be in Nassau County, believe it or not. Cause you could just hop on the Long Island railroad and we used to take the train in to see shows at the Roseland. We used to go to wetlands. We used to go to Irving Plaza and aggressive edge and SOU were playing those bands. So it was really, really cool. It was a great alternative from like the late nineties, uh, K rock kind of stuff. Hmm which I've embraced later on in my life. You know, I'm a yoga practitioner and I'm a lover of music. So uh, I'm not quite as like purist or, you know, have to only wear black now. Like I have to wear tie dye too at this point in my life. Um, and I just love that. And I loved finding out about new music and I had no idea the opportunities I'd be able to have getting into the station. Cause that's basically all I started doing. Um, you know, as producer of the edge, I had a desk in the music office and there wasn't much time between when Marcello was the producer and myself, but there was a little bit of time, like maybe two or three or four months. And in that time, all of these unopened mailers came and I had to basically just get in there and start clearing CDs. And uh, I used to use like um, a purple gel pen and we would mark, like I liked metal and I would actually listen to the CDs and my boyfriend helped also. And they were just promos that marketing agencies were trying to send to us because we were reporting to all the major college reporting outlets at that time. I mean, CMJ was still there. Um, but anyhow, I got to work and I gave my input. Sometimes, you know, I would recommend things specifically and then you just put them in the studio. And so we started playing this music and I made all these great relationships with uh, people that are still working in the industry now. I mean, from this recent Facebook post that I made about the aggressive edge, uh, I've reconnected with like Munzi Ricky from Skateboard Marketing he started up in 1991. He listed off about 10 people from Hofstra that went on to work with him. You know, Tracy Presta, she was one of my DJs. She went on to work with Koch Records and Skateboard. And, you know, she wants to get back on. She wants to keep the community alive. You know, that's, that's overwhelmingly like what all the DJs that were involved in The Edge want to do um <laughs> when life moves on you know it's like college radio also involves people graduating and you have to pass the torch and uh you have to keep those relationships intact because Hofstra is one of the biggest metropolitan radio markets like it's it's parts of Queens it's all of Nassau you know everyone can listen online now yeah it's just fantastic. And that's actually been an influence for kids that were listening to my show, like back in the early 2000s, late 90s, they went on, you know, they are producers now. They made their own bands. That's where they found out about this new music that wasn't being played anywhere else. I also heard on social media with listeners from back then, they're still talking to me 20 years 
after the fact. Um, you know, this guy, Nick Cassiopo, he's pretty big on the uh, grindcore scene, played in a band called The Communion for years in the early 2000s. He says the aggressive edge, it definitely set him down a lot of paths and that it was a perfect antidote to all that terrible late 90s radio. <laughs> uh, he, Nick also remembers this caller, Austin. Austin from Belmore is how I used to refer to him. He gained infamy by requesting the same deicide song every single time. Wow. <laughs> so deicide, you know, not exactly a current track, um, you know, but I wanted to make listeners happy. Austin remembers when I banned him. I banned him from requesting Serpents of the Light by deicide. And, uh, you know, but he thought that it was awesome for him as a high school kid to just be able to hear the metal on the radio. And he, he told me that he learned about bands that he wouldn't have known otherwise you know when i asked when i asked nick cassiopo about his experience how did it set him up on different paths he said that he pretty much discovered all of relapse records on the aggressive edge you hmm. know through that show i used to play a band called in the eyes of god a lot and they were on relapse and uh that was one of the bands that i interviewed at a metal fest trip you know I took a small recorder. I signed it out from that little rental office in Dempster. And, uh, you know, I was just running around with my RHU badge trying to get clips from these new bands. So, mm. I mean, a listener from 20 years ago, he's telling me that the aggressive edge was something his own band bonded over because they were getting to request songs like, you know, they weren't able to hear on commercial radio. And, uh, I know that the scene was pretty inhospitable for heavy music back then. You know, he, uh, he felt like it was there for them. And uh, that just touches my heart that I can factor into the history on Long Island like that. You know, he, uh, he was going on. I actually pulled this up so I could read this to you. Is that okay, Brian? Sure, sure. <laughs> Nick Cassiopo, he says, a lot of college radio had their token metal shows back then, but they felt like some exhausting chore done as a favor by the station for an audience that they needed, but sometimes quite openly didn't care for. And the aggressive edge on the other end is taking requests for Brutal Truth or Sam Black Church and a lot of other really out there stuff. And uh, that's when K-Rock was playing things like just Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie, that's not what we were playing. That's not what Bruce Avery wanted us to do with the edge. That's why he paid for us to go to CMJ, you know, and he paid for our badges so we could get that music and put it on the air. And let listeners hear some new, good, heavy stuff. You know, I was recently talking with engineering god Andy Gladding also, mm. whom I came up with at the station, and he reminded me that Bruce was a huge fan of the metal show and the punk show, you know, sort of like the after dark shows, even the airwave show. Okay, Brian, <laughs> <laughs> because they embodied that underground misfit vibe that always meant college radio to Bruce, you know? So it's been uplifting to have these kind of conversations 20 years later. And I can't thank them enough for, you know, giving me a chance to do it back then. I used to get fan mail, from listeners. It was addressed to me at the station, you know, 
these guys from the Nassau County Correctional Facility down the street. It's the turnpike. They used to write letters and request songs. And then I'd go on the air and be like, all right, sure. You know, here it is. Uh, How come you guys aren't just calling me? And then a week later, I would get a letter that said, well, because we don't have access to the phone during the aggressive edge. (laughs) I just loved connecting with listeners. This guy Rob from Farmingdale brought flowers to the station for me one time. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds uh that sounds dangerous possibly. I gave him permission, you know, I didn't oh, okay. Okay. I didn't welcome people on, but I'm saying I made relationships with regular callers and uh it was just such an awesome experience. And I mean like they've opened up bands uh across New York City like through clubs that were started. And these were people that I know were listening to the aggressive edge. It's just heartwarming for me. And it touches my heart. That's how important a radio show can be. That's, that's so cool that, that you had that experience and it's, and it's still meaningful for you all these days, but I want to go back to the beginning. So you sit down and you have this interview with uh, Ed and Sean and Bruce and Michelle. Um, What comes next? Was there a training program? How did you get, uh, prepared to be on the air and working at the station? Yeah, there was an evening class. And I remember it was about an hour and a half long. And it met every week. I think it was on Wednesday nights. And that started pretty much immediately once they got the crew of incoming folks that were going to join the station. And uh, that was a commitment. You know, we had to buy a textbook. Um we had to audit shows. We had to watch and observe. We had to learn a lot about um, like how to operate things, obviously. And we were changing over from everything was analog. So I still learned how to, you know, feed reel to reel. I worked on uh, vinyl. I had I had the eight track carts. We had CDs. It was pretty cool. I mean, I'm not sure how things are moving right now, um, but we had to learn all that media and we had to get a pair of headphones. So that was pretty cool. I remember uh, I worked at Sam Goody at the time, so that was pretty easy. Nice. And uh, then it was just getting a slot. You know, you had to sort of pick from the classics or jazz. That was mainly the formats that occupied the daytime. Cause I remember president Stewart at the time, mm-hmm. he, uh, I think he made an edict that uh, classicals had to be classics had to be on during the day. And then it went to jazz or maybe vice versa. Um, and it was on a speaker outside bits and bites. I remember. Um, so I took a classical slot during the summer because People went away and I was local. So that was probably a three hour time period. But the movements were longer. It wasn't like I was doing a lot of on air stuff. And we had to get comfortable reading news copy. There was some information about diction and, you know, dropping your P's and trying to have a pleasant voice, trying to smooth out any kind of Long Island. Long Island situation going mm-hmm. on. I know from that. Yeah. Well, I think it worked because I actually worked as a waitress during that time period too. And my guests didn't know where I was from sometimes. So I took that as a major accomplishment. Hmm. 
Under, understood. So when you when you did the interview and you, the training program, was this once you started as a freshman at Hofstra or was it the summer before? No, I was a freshman, but I okay. went to the station during that freshman orientation weekend. It was a mandatory sleepover weekend. Right. And, you know, I wasn't going to be dorming, but they had that experience set up for the incoming freshmen. And we got to tour through the station. And so it was definitely on my radar. I was like, I got to get involved with this. I have to figure out how I'm going to get involved with this station, you know, Um, because I didn't even know that it would be available like that. So that was a real great surprise because Hofstra was on my radar. um, But I didn't know what kind of opportunities I would have to actually get involved. Did you did you have an idea of what the station would look like before you went down there? Well, not really. No. <laughs> I was pretty, pretty new to the whole experience. I had never been inside of a radio station before. Um, but I was told that the new system was equivalent to Z100. And we were top of Constitution Hall, but that was pretty impressive because growing up, you know, you're listening to from the top of the Empire State Building. It's mm-hmm. like, whoa, this is awesome. Radio coming to me. So, um yeah, I was just like super psyched. A new person coming in. I met some people during that freshman orientation weekend that are really big in the metal scene now. Chris Enriquez. I remember I noticed an indecision patch on his backpack. And I was just like, hey, man, I like your patch. You know, I'm trying to bond. I didn't know anybody there. It's like kind of a North Shore, South Shore thing. But we didn't really know how to respond to each other. And he's listed that like he's an accomplished drummer. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a band at that time that played on the edge uh, on the Mighty Princes. But I mean, what he's just he's just very active now. If you look him up and he remembers that moment, he's like, I'm really sorry. I was a jerk to you about that patch. <laughs> you know, but uh, that's how people were, I guess, when you started college, you're unsure of yourself. You don't know where you're going to fit in just yet. And I really found my place at the station. It was there for me. That was the place that you went to, like in between classes, you know, you make a phone call, use the bathroom or whatever. Um, I ran there after September 11th happened. I had a jewelry making class in 2001. And that morning, I was just like, whoa, I'm getting a beep from my boyfriend, the metalhead, who was a recording. He was working at a recording studio in lower Manhattan at the time. And we had pagers, you know, I got a beep and I couldn't call back. I was using the phone at the station. And I remember Brian McGoolahan saw me crying in the hallway there. And he's like, what are you, what are you so upset about? I'm like, everything is going to change right now. Like right now, everything is changing right now. And, uh, I mean, that, gosh, that's just 22 years ago, you know, I made bonds with people that are still alive today. I'm just so thankful that I was there at the station at that time. Um, so many people that were willing to stand up, Bruce Avery, my perennial professional reference on my resume forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, he always had time for me in his office. Even before I became, you know, the producer of The Edge, 
he he's just an amazing mentor. I used to walk on campus at night and if his light was on, on the corner there of the building, I'd just pop right in, you know, hey Bruce, what's going on? Always had time to sit down and chat and ask me what's going on, you know, how are you finding the station? So it was that kind of approachability. Even, you know, Ed and Michelle, later on, Joe DeRosa, he would tell me anything I wanted to know about the equipment, you know, as we went into doing interviews and pre-recording shows and just such a loving, supportive environment. It's just always been that. And I'm so proud of where the station has gone. You know, I got to also participate in the coverage of election night 2000. And I was broadcasting from the Nassau County Democratic headquarters. And I was there when they called the election to Gore, like in Florida, they said that the state had gone to him. So that was pretty awesome. I think I was 20 years old at the time, talking to representatives from Congress that were there and representing my station. We won a folio award for our coverage from that night. And it really just went on. Um, they used to send me to CMJ. The university would pay to have us staying at the Hilton. Wow. Yeah. And uh, we made good use of that because that's how we made those connections. That's how we got that good new music and stayed current. And it was appreciated. You know, if a band was coming to town, it was pretty important for them to have people get amped up about their show. I remember I drove all the way to Asbury Park, New Jersey, and there was a woman there that was representing the band in flames. And I think my spins had fallen. Like I didn't play the song like two times. It was two times less than the, than the previous week. And she had such feelings for me because of that. And I mean, that's how important it was uh, to keep those relationships with the people that were running college music. Did I really know that at the time? I don't think so. You know, <laughs> um, we kind of had to learn that for ourselves. And I did have comfort, you know, if somebody said, Hey, I, I have these two tickets. You want to drive over to Jersey? I'd say, yes. You know, I had a car and it was just super fun meeting a lot of people. And we took a whole crew down to, uh, I guess it was Asbury Park again, New Jersey for Metal Fest, and another year in Worcester, Massachusetts. And we were there collecting all of these interviews and, uh, you know, the sound bites for the carts. This is Derek from Sepultura, and you're listening to The Aggressive Edge, or, you know, interviewing Jerry only. Really wild stuff for a woman like me. You know, I'm a stay at home mom currently, but. This was like a real part of my life that uh, I'm so happy can be preserved in this manner. Thank you for talking with me, Brian. Yeah, it sounds like a really good time and it sounds like you really got invested. I mean, you were invested in the music scene and, and it only got deeper at the radio station. But in terms of working at the station, it's I'm going to guess that you felt pretty comfortable there socially early on. It sounds like you made some connections at the station that made you feel like, yeah, this is the place that I want to be and I'm going to spend my free time here. 
I did. I really clicked with a lot of people and it was across different groups too. It was like, I was hanging out with a lot of the sports department. Um, we went away on a ski trip one time to Killington. It was pretty crazy time. Um, <laughs> so I used to get invited out by the DJs that did P5 and meet them out in Rockville Center and go dancing. And, you know, it was, it was a way to definitely feel accepted. I was in the liberal arts college. I actually was not in the school of communication. So I was sort of undecided for the longest time. I did wind up graduating with a BA in liberal arts. Um, but all my heart was in Dempster Hall. I yeah. was a Dempster rat for sure. Un understood. Do you remember getting on the air the first time, whether it was doing the classics or board hopping or the first time you did Aggressive Edge? Do you remember your feelings or your anticipation about getting on the radio? I remember the sensations of my fingers. I remember feeling my fingers a little bit numb, but moving the pots up on the board and pushing the buttons. And I remember how quiet it was inside my own headphones. And I had heard myself recorded before in audition and it didn't really seem any different, but I knew that it was live. So it was very electric. And I don't remember a specific time, like my very first show, but I know all of that is documented in print up in my mother's attic somewhere. Mm. Um, I just really, I remember the sensation of standing up behind the console, all the different things, you know, the phones ringing with the lights flashing. Um, I remember, you know, who's that coming in when you hear the outdoor, the first door to the hallway open and the person's in that little sound lock booth. And then you see their little face in the, in this tiny little window through to the studio. So cool. I remember reading the news and wanting to sound very professional mm -hmm. and it's just hilarious because I was the one going on this computer down the hall to select whatever stories that I wanted to read. So that was a lot of power in that time. I, I considered it pretty powerful. It made me feel very fulfilled. Um, I'm a Virgo, you know, I'm kind of like a type A person. I liked being in control. I liked having all of the uh, different parts moving at once. And I loved getting my own show. Mm. That was really cool. And it was late at night. So I was there at the station basically by myself. It was 11 to 1. And then I did 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. at times. And I used to also sign the station off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would have to stay after uh, for Brian Lucrezia, who is chronically late for all things and probably still is to this day. Um, but he was the DJ after to do airwave and he would always try to make up for it and like call the station at 10 at, uh, whatever 45 of the hour it was 1245. And he'd be like, Oh, I'm just at Taco Bell. Do you want me to get you anything? Um, yeah. Can you just like start the show for me? And so I'd be like, okay, like, and <laughs> read the news that I had already and, uh, put on some modest mouse or Sonic youth or something, you know, until he showed up. <laughs> that's that's great that the the disdain in in your voice from the, from the metalhead point of view 
uh, from Modest Mouse or Sonic Youth. That's just that's classic because I was an airwave guy and I wasn't necessarily a metal guy. So I uh-huh. could I could see the difference in the neighborhoods and you're and you're you're you know you're helping out with you know with this lesser art form. I I, I hear that. That's okay. Yeah, like I don't want to be a jerk and just run the edge over into airwave. Like I want to be kind and do what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. When did you feel comfortable on the air? Again, it seems like probably pretty quickly, but when were you confident that, that you knew what you were doing and you could run this two or four hour show yourself and, and make it sound the way that you wanted to? Oh my gosh. I think it's probably pretty soon to the start. I mean, I think I was just ready to hit the ground running. I, uh, I fake it until I make it. And I guess I'm, I am a classically trained performer. I was on Broadway when I was 13 and I performed when I was a middle schooler, you know, I used to get out of school early and perform on stage. And I mean, having a radio mic in a private room to myself was a piece of cake. You know, I had absolutely no judgment visually. I felt that because I had been like a a Nisma singer and, had vocal coaching through the years, I knew what to do with my voice. And so it was really great. I had the ultimate playground, not a sandbox, but it was definitely my playground. I can't let the Broadway thing go by. What is that? What is, <laughs> what, what were you performing in? I was a child actor. Um, I performed as a chorus member in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Starring Michael Damien. And I did that when I was 13. And I guess I was scouted from a middle school play. And the choreographer just needed a couple more kids to round out his dance company. So 25 of us from Nassau met up with 25 kids from Westchester. And 50 kids were in one team. And there was another team of another 50 kids And we used to just do the shows, you know, like flip-flop. We'd do five shows a week. Actually, dude, one of the guys that I was in that show with, Scott Kletzkin, he was an Aggressive Edge DJ. And he used to also DJ on the Common Ground. So that's cool. Me and Scott were in that play when we were 13. And, uh... Yeah, it's it's a small world, and it it sounds like all these elements came together for you. This this performance background, your love of radio, your love of this kind of music. It just seems like the like Hofstra Radio was the perfect landing spot for you at the time. Oh yeah, I mean, my locker in high school was next to Dave Castillo. Now, I don't know if you guys know David Castillo. He has done so much in the metal scene. He is. A producer creating his own music he has gone beyond the genre he's opened up saint vitus bar it's like this place in brooklyn where it's just got this active scene to this day and that's who was listening to the show that i was driving my jetta to do up at hofstra hmm. at night and i felt so cool doing that i wanted to make them proud and it was personal and then it was also like wow this is being heard in a bigger audience you know all these record execs, you know, like the marketing company people, Munzee from skateboarding, um, Jose Mangan, he was promoting uh, album by Seven Dust at the time. They kind of sucked, but he was so nice to me. 
And he, you know, like he took me out to Def Leppard show at Jones Beach. I got to shake the drummer's one hand. He was working that record. Like, you know, of course I had to play it. Um, The guys from Concrete Marketing, you know, I want to shout them out. Everybody was so kind to me because they knew that I wanted to do a good job. And it was like a baby of mine, you know, and I, I know that it's been the baby of others. And it's just hard. Like when you don't have somebody that really knows about the, the music in any capacity or like has experience knowing what others in the scene want to hear or could be open to hearing. Hmm. I'd be interested to hear what's going on right now. You know, like my musical interests have branched out entirely. I have a two, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. So, you know, my five-year-old is a drummer. Hmm. I'm exposing him to everything. You know, he got my old record collection and, you know, I hate to see him scratching things up, but I had to get, I had to get his hands on it. Just like I got my hands on it, you know? Yeah. It sounds like your parents gave you a good uh, musical education and your brothers. And it sounds like you, you absorbed that. And now, now you're passing it forward. That's, that, that's very cool. Thanks, man. Do you have kids? Uh, I do not. I do not. I'm a, I'm a high school teacher. It's enough kids that in my life. That's all I know. Oh. <laughs> um, so, Oh, actually I was a high school teacher too. And when I was doing the edge, I was working as a substitute teacher. So what I would do, I would write right over by the homework spot where the kids had to copy down 88.7 FM. Nice. WRHU, the aggressive edge, 11 PM to 1 AM. And I would just leave it up there. And that's how I got so many kids to listen. Yeah, it's really, really, it's an amazing, heartwarming thing for me. Obviously, Hofstra Radio and WRHU and this this music scene meant so much to you, and we're having this conversation today. But can you go back to your mindset uh, as you're entering Hofstra as a student and joining the radio station? What did you hope the radio station would mean to you at that moment in time? And what did it become? Well, at that moment in time, I wanted to find a group of people that would accept me. You know, I had been accepted with the drama kids. I had been accepted with like a certain known group and you're not sure who you're going to meet in college. So that's what I was seeking. I was seeking that social embrace. Um, I was seeking a way to have fun, you know, like just to do something personally gratifying and make shows, make playlists. It's so easy to do it on your phone now, but Hmm. you know, I had been role-playing being a DJ for much of my whole life. So that's really all I was looking to do. Not mess up, you know, not interfere with my academics, which it didn't. I mean, we had a lot of time to do stuff while you're doing a show especially if you were just engineering. Um, but what it became, I had no idea what it would become. It became my first look into a professional work environment. You know, not a school. Hmm. Like a place where real people had families also. You know, so you had to, I learned how to respect like a work-life balance for the first time hmm. at WRHU. Because then, you know, Bruce's daughter, Rachel, was going to school at the same time as Nick and I. And when I first found out that he had a daughter that was sort of like my age, 
I was like blown away because he was so giving to all of us at that moment. I, I couldn't believe he had his own daughter at the same stage in her life. And she was also, you know, sharing him for all of us. Um, so that was cool. Like I got to be alongside folks that were not the same age as me, but it was okay that I was 19 or 20 and I'm sitting next to Ed Ingalls, you know, legendary CBS broadcaster. Mm-hmm. It, it was mind blowing. It was really cool. I liked being out of the uh, child seat. I liked being taken seriously and I liked having it on my resume. I didn't realize that it was going to be such an organization, you know, such a meaningful part of so many people's lives. That's a really great way to put it. Um, Tammy, this has been phenomenal. I've had so much fun listening to your stories. I'm already thinking about going back through my CD collection and looking up some some late 90s loud rock and, <laughs> and spending the rest of the afternoon Hurt my eardrums. Uh, you're no, inspiring. No, no. Earplugs these days, okay, Brian? <laughs> yeah, no, I've 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 lost. I've, I've so much of my listening range is gone. But that's it's it's all in it's all in good service. Okay. But this well, was this dude, was awesome. It's been so great. Yeah, I mean, thank you for taking me back. It means a lot, and thank you for what you're doing to preserve the oral history of WRHU.